1: We have a really, really busy news day here on Political Rewind. I'm rolling up my sleeves along with the rest of the panel to get set to plow into a number of big stories that have been breaking over the last 24 hours. So I want to get right to it. We're joined as we are every Wednesday by the AJC's Greg Bluestein. Um, thank you for being with us, Greg. I'll talk to you in just a minute about the uh, headline story today. Tia Mitchell. AJC Washington correspondent is with us. Uh, Tia, you've had a busy couple of days watching the House Democrats feud and f- and bluster over the reconciliation package and the infrastructure bill. Thank you for joining us. Fred Smith, oh, professor for- of <laughs> constitutional Yeah, Professor Fred Fred Smith, constitutional law professor at Emory joins us. As does Riley Bunch, our very own GPB policy, public policy Reporter, Thank you all so much for being here, and I apologize for the kind of quick introductions because I want to get right to the big news. Bluestein, you've been telling listeners to this show for literally months that you had no question Herschel Walker was going to run for Raphael Warnock's Senate seat. We dismissed your contentions now and then, but Bluestein, you were right. It's on, isn't it?
2: it's on uh, and Herschel Walker becomes the immediate frontrunner in the Republican contest in this race he's got name recognition he's got Donald Trump support and the two of those things alone have driven congressman buddy carter um, who is considering a race out of the contest uh, just a, se- a few seconds ago actually buddy carter endorsed herschel walker that that is a sign of 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 just how 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 much of a factor high name recognition and Donald Trump's support have combined to make Herschel Walker uh, the, the candidate to beat. That's not to say he's, he's not beatable in the Republican primary. There's a lot of unknowns about how he'll campaign, about what role Trump will play, how he'll deal with his sometimes troubled past uh, that, that includes violent and erratic behavior, in his history, all sorts of major questions to come. But right now, Herschel Walker's in the race, and it's going to be a, a race like, unlike any we've ever seen before in Georgia.
1: You know, one of the questions we don't know the answer to is just what kind of campaigner Herschel Walker will be, what kind of excuse <clears> me, <throat> issues he will highlight in his campaign. So I'm going to play a little sound for all of you from Herschel Walker's speech at the Republican convention last year, and then we'll talk more about what he's likely to do as a campaigner. Uh, he spoke on video. It was a taped message to Republican delegates to the convention. And of course, he was there to talk about his long friendship with Donald Trump. And I, but I think this now will give us some sense of who Walker thinks of himself as being as he positions himself politically. Let's listen.
3: I'm not an actor, a singer, or a politician. I'm Herschel Walker. Most of you know me as a football player, but I'm also a father a man of faith, and a very good judge of character. I've known Donald Trump for 37 years, and I don't mean just casual ran to him from time to time. I'm talking about a deep personal friendship. He taught me that the family should be your top priority. I watched him treat janitors, security guards, and waiters the same way he would treat a VIP. He made them feel special because he knew they were. He understands that they are the people who make this country run. Some people don't like his style, the way he knocks down obstacles that get in the way of his goals. People on the opposing team didn't like when I ran over them either. But that's how you get the job done. Okay, let's do a go
1: around. Um, starting with you, Riley. Um, when you hear that, do you hear the makings, the beginning of the kind of messaging we might expect from Herschel Walker, including what are likely to be endless allusions to football?
0: Well, I mean, he's playing off of what he has working for him in his favor, right? Kind of this hometown hero. Um, and I think that's going to be his message on the campaign. Whether we're going to see po- actual policy issues, I'm not so sure. We have <laughs> heard from Gary Black this morning um, in his response to Herschel Walker that he wants to talk policy um, on the campaign trail. But also this, this trail is going to acquire a lot of, you know, um, being out in the public, being in the public eye, stumping and talking to constituents, especially for Herschel Walker, who hasn't been here. Will he step up to the plate? I don't know. We saw that in the last Senate race that David Perdue was kind of under the public eye a little bit. So we'll see, you know, what his strategy is.
1: Tia, well, you wait and then let's get Fred in on this, too.
4: I think it's going to be so interesting because Herschel Walker is really leaning into his Donald Trump connections. You know, we've seen Republicans in Georgia, you know, Kelly Leffler and David Perdue, of course, they accepted his help and they campaigned with him, but they never tried to align themselves as like close personal friends to the degree that Herschel Walker will be doing. Um, And I think that's just going to be an interesting dynamic. I think it will just make him stronger in the primary. Um, There's really no way Trump can endorse anyone else at this point. Um, But it'll be really interesting to see what happens in a general election, again, with the candidate who is so closely aligned, not just politically and professionally, but personally with President Trump.
1: Hey, Fred, I want to get you in here, but I want to add one note for everybody. You're an Athens man. You grew up there. You must have watched Herschel Walker as a star, as the guy who took the Georgia Bulldogs to a national championship when you were quite young. Uh, I just find that an interesting perspective on all this, Fred.
5: Yeah, so that should make anyone feel all. but um, I was being born <laughs> during that period. All that said, oh. all that said. So- the, the lore and the story and the highlight reels and classmates whose middle name was Herschel, all of that. Absolutely. Right. The, the, the legend uh, of, of Herschel Walker um, was very much alive throughout my childhood. He certainly was, uh, you know, as Riley put it, um, the football uh, hometown hero. Um, and what I'm struck by in that particular uh, message um, is really the two things that, uh, that Greg pointed out. Right. So there's the, um, there's the name recognition, right? So he's leaning into why he has that name recognition, uh, and then there's uh, the uh, the President Trump uh, connection. Uh, on the President Trump connection, um, I I would say actually we have seen candidates like Kelly Leffler lean into Donald Trump, right? She said she was 100% pro-Trump. By the end, she was out there wearing the red hat. Um, I'm not sure how um, how authentically it resonated with voters, but uh, but she but she did do that. What strikes me uh, as interesting about uh, Herschel Walker's approach though, is that it's not about policy right? That it is about, Mm -hmm. he's leaning into the aspects of, uh, of Donald Trump's personality um, that the base finds uh, so attractive. And, um, and we've, and that seems to be where Donald Trump's strength, strength with his base really lies when he, when it comes to policy and this ability to kind of move the conversation and and shape that in a meaningful way. um, He hasn't been that successful. Trump hasn't. Um, But when it's come to, uh, people sort of um, associating themselves with his no holes barred, um, not politically correct, willing to kind of say anything, or, you know, as, as Herschel Walker put it, push people uh, who are in his way. Um, those are the aspects of his personality that seem more popular, and, and it, it's, um, it's striking to hear um, a candidate um, kind of lean into that particular strength.
1: Greg, I, one of the reasons I pulled that section of the three and a half minute or so speech that Walker gave to the convention is just what Fred's talking about. He uh, first, obviously, the whole thing is filled with uh, uh, extreme praise for Trump, but he, he conjures up the image of the working people and how, how much in touch with the working people of America uh, Trump was uh, as he ran his campaign and White House. And and that's certainly something that Herschel Walker is going to want to emphasize. That That's, in many ways, he's talking about the base of the Republican Party when he conjures up those images, right?
2: Yeah, you're exactly right. And he's got to prove over the next six or seven months until the primary that he's someone who can engender that same passion that, that, you know, that Trump has helped stoke. Uh, among George's. many of whom have heard of him, obviously has high name recognition. Uh, there's people like me who went to UGA who grew up hearing, you know, stories of his athletic prowess and all that, um, but also who don't know what he's been doing since then. Uh, you know, who, who, are, who are aware that he's a that he, he's a, he's an athlete, but don't know anything about his businesses, don't know anything about uh, any of the um, the struggles and the and the accomplishments he's he's had since then, and that's going to be. Uh, the, 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 one of the main challenges for his campaign right now. And we're not hearing much, you know, he, he issued an initial statement earlier this morning talking about the American dream I and mean, very broad, right? Nothing controversial, fighting for conservative values, but not, no specifics about what those conservative values are. But pretty soon he'll have to etch out exactly where he stands on anything ranging from abortion to gun rights to to immigration. You know, a lot of the hot button issues that, that help uh, drive a Republican primary and help distinguish him from his, his his rivals.
1: Okay, Greg, let me ask you just a couple of nuts and bolts questions, uh, because you've been on the inside of this for a long time now. You obviously have had great sources giving you information about Her- Herschel's preparations to make this race. So with that in mind, has he built a campaign team? Does he have a, a campaign consultant, a manager at this point? Who's going to run this campaign? Who brings the professional expertise that Herschel himself lacks as a first-time candidate.
2: Yeah, well, his campaign team, he has formed a campaign team. Among them is Mallory Blount, who is uh, up until recently on the Governor, Governor Kemp's uh, team, um, a campaign, uh, sorry, off, official office team. Scott Paradise is involved. Um, there's, there's a number of Washington veterans involved, too, some of them who have worked for Lindsey Graham, the senator from South Carolina, who is among... Uh, Herschel Walker's biggest supporters. I mean, Lindsey Graham was the senator out there saying that Herschel should run, 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 run. Uh, you know, second only probably to, 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 to former President Trump. Um, but what we're not sure of yet is how the, the rest of the rollout is going to go. You know, when he'll have his first campaign rally, when he'll make an appearance, uh, when he'll do interviews. Um, what we know so far is that he's he's spoken very rarely um uh, you know, to, 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 to the media. And when he has, it's generally been to friendly interviewers in Fox News who are basically begging him to run, you know, saying, you'll be yeah. a great candidate. Tell us why that kind of stuff. So how he reacts to less partisan media, you know, uh, more objective media, asking him uh, some of the tougher questions about what he's going to do and how he's going to um, account for his past uh, struggles uh, will be will be the telling point in this campaign.
1: So Tia, um, he he's already uh, gotten Buddy Carter out of the race. Buddy Carter waiting for Herschel Walker to jump in, but Latham Sadler, uh, Kelvin King, uh, still active candidates. Gary Black has already issued a statement, but you, you've got to wonder if this is going to freeze any other possible candidates. I mean, for instance, is Kelly Leffler really still thinking about wanting to jump into this race? Tia?
4: Yeah, I think in the jolt today, which um, the portion that Greg is responsible for. He made a really interesting point, which was that this allows Kelly Loeffler to just kind of sit back and see how the field shakes Mm -hmm. out. And if, you know, Herschel Walker stumbles in a few months and we know that the other guys may not gain traction, then that allows her to kind of sweep in as a person who can fix it and coalesce the party. That being said, I think that in the short term, there are a lot of just like logistical questions for Herschel Walker. What's he doing with that Homestead exemption? Um, You know, Mm -hmm. what's he doing with his schedule that he has speeches all around the nation coming up at a time when he should be campaigning across Georgia. And I think that that's going to be number one, very telling as to how serious he is, because there are still people I think that aren't sure if he really is serious about wanting to be a senator Um, but also just like ways that the other Republicans in the race can kind of chip away at his support Riley and you know when we're when we're talking about other
0: Republicans, I think it's also important to look at the broader context of his candidacy, right? You know, after the last election, there was such division in the Republican Party. I've, we've heard even from GOP operatives on your show, Bill, that they they want to get back to some of the policy and want to get back to kind of some of the old campaigning on conservative values. But with this candidacy announcement, with Trump's backing, I'm sure the question is now, when will we see Trump back in Georgia, not if, right? You know, there's the Republican Party not being able to push back against Herschel Walker, you know, lots of people not entering the race. It just shows what a hold Trump still has on the Republican Party in Georgia, and that's still the direction that the campaigns are going.
1: Fred, in, in some ways, the Walker entry into this race is fraught with potential danger for Georgia Republicans. Obviously, he's enormously popular here. He um, has a big leg up on other candidates in terms of name recognition, in terms of the extraordinary career he had in football. But the, the baggage <laughs> that he brings with him, which today is not the day we'll get into it. We certainly will as his candidacy un- unfolds. But um, it, it, if, if Raphael Warnock has become a very strong guy to beat, he's a formidable fundraiser, ten million plus dollars in the bank, and he's not going to have any opposition of any merit, certainly for the Democratic nomination. So that money we can go to can go to the general election, um, and and if Walker falters as a candidate himself or because of the baggage that he comes with, it puts Republicans in a tough spot.
5: Yeah, and I think what makes it particularly fraught. Uh, is that he, uh, he's, he's polling very, very well, um, both in terms of kind of head-to-head matchups and also uh, in terms of the primary itself. The last poll that I saw, he was uh, in the Republican primary, he was at 54%, and no one else was close. I mean, so, Latham um, Sadler, who you mentioned, was at, at 1%, for example. Um, Kelvin King was at 2%. Um, and, uh, and so he can almost in some respects afford um, to go through the primary with little in the way of scrutiny and you know what this has worked for him so far and so I imagine that his strategy is going to be to continue to be in the outlets that are not going to allow him to stumble. Um, Republican primaries in Georgia uh, seem to be decided often at the very last minute, like there's the, the last minute rally, the last minute tape that comes out the last minute. Right? And so uh, and so, you know, you, whatever, whatever that last minute moment is, he, he has to overcome that. Uh, right. But a general election, um, you know, it's going to have the national eye on it, uh, in, in just, especially if this is the matchup Warnock versus Walker in a way where um, he's going to have to at that point. Uh, I think that's when the scrutiny uh, is going to be um at its uh, at its most significant and um you know and 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 maybe he'll go through that uh, with flying colors right, but many candidates um stumble under the eye of, uh, of what, when they ha- when they have to actually answer um really uh, difficult questions and when they're just kind of constantly being asked things such that they might make the clip say the thing that becomes the ad and so forth right and and um, there's no reason to think that he is at this point um, disciplined on those things. And so that's something that um, he's certainly going to have to work on. And, uh, you know, I, I can I can sing Reverend Warnock's accolades all day, so I won't do that. I'll, I'll stick to the, to the objective uh, 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 analysis for now.
1: Uh, Greg, before we move on, we're going to obviously have plenty of time to talk about Herschel Walker's candidacy <laughs> in the months ahead. Uh, I did think it was interesting uh, governor Kemp's uh, statement about Walker was interesting uh, He because he reflected this notion that uh, Republicans are thrilled to have a, a star running for Senate. But he also made it clear that he understands Herschel Walker comes with some issues that could create problems for him. That was an interesting ob- observation for the governor to make, I thought.
2: Yeah, he's tiptoeing around it. And this is a this is a unique position for the governor, too, because obviously the governor is an Athens native with a diehard UGA fan who probably grew up admiring um, Herschel Walker as well. They both share Vince Dooley, the former UGA coach, as as mentors. But at the same time, because of Herschel Walker's alliance with Trump, who has very publicly said he wanted to exact his revenge on, on the governor, it's putting the governor in a bizarre spot. Um, Herschel uh, endorsed the governor a few years ago, But then earlier uh, in in this past cycle has also been critical of the governor for not trying to illegally overturn President Trump's defeat in Georgia. So it could be a very interesting top of the ticket with the two of them not being exactly best friends uh, if if, if Herschel Walker indeed wins the Republican nomination.
1: Greg, have you heard from your sources when the actual formal announcement comes and what form it will take? Are we talking about a rally? Are we talking about a a video that he releases? What what do you think is going to happen next?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. There'll, there'll be a video on, on sometime Wednesday, and there is a formal release that came out earlier this morning with a statement that you know was 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 pretty broad. Um, but the question we have is, okay, when do we get a crack at it? Right? When do, when do reporters get to see him in person? And 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 it might be that might be a slower rollout. Um, I imagine, just my hunches, it'll be tied to UGA. It'll be something in Athens. It'll be something maybe even with the with the football game, the the, the home openers, and in, uh, in September 11th or 10th, I think it is. Yeah. Um, so I'd yeah. imagine there's something tied to that.
1: Um, Okay, we'll watch for that. That'll be uh, fascinating. All right, um, we're going to take our first break of the show because we still have so much to talk about. Before we do, Greg Bluestein, you certainly were old enough uh, to have watched Herschel Walker uh, as a star uh, running back for the Bulldogs. And, Greg, I'm going to make a public request out there. My wife was at the University of Georgia during those Walker years and uh, went to the national championship game. She doesn't have any interest in his politics, but she still thinks of him fondly. And we were last night desperately trying to find the song, Give Herschel the Ball, which apparently, Greg, <laughs> became a very big hit when Walker was playing. So if anybody out there has that song, let me know. We want to play it on the show,
2: <laughs> Greg. <laughs> uh, Bill, I think you've got my age a little. I, I'm like <laughs> Professor Smith. I think I was being born around that, <laughs> that time Oh, my gosh. What are we? Oh,
1: all right. I, I, I... I don't even know what to say. I guess I'm by far the the oldest person.
2: a legend in my mind. All right.
1: (laughs) Well, this old man needs to take a break because we got a lot more to talk about. We'll be back in a minute on Political Rewind. Riley Bunch, Tia Mitchell, Fred Smith, Greg Bluestein on today's action-packed edition of Political Rewind. Uh, Tia, we spent a good amount of time on the show yesterday talking about Carolyn Bordeaux and the other moderates who some progressive Democrats think were gumming up the works in uh, allowing Nancy Pelosi and the progressives to bundle together uh, two of uh, President Biden's biggest uh, uh, initiatives, uh, items that will help define his legacy: one, the one trillion-plus dollar infrastructure package, which Pelosi and the progressives wanted to essentially bundle with a 3.5 trillion-dollar um, social infrastructure package, as they called it, with things like pre-K for all, free community college, expansion of Medicaid, and the like. And Carolyn Bordeaux was one of those moderates who was saying, "No, no, no! Let's take the victory with infrastructure first before we even deal." with the $3.5 trillion package, which still needs a lot of vetting. They were holding out. They were under severe well, criticism, as you know, from covering it from the progressives. And last night, it or yesterday, rather, it, it all ended with essentially the moderates accepting a fairly, uh, I mean, I guess hard for me to characterize it, but but a deal that didn't give them a whole lot. Tia?
4: Yes. They ultimately kind of fell in line and the, the, the biggest concession they received was that there will be some type of action on this bipartisan infrastructure bill by September 27th. And depending on how quickly Democrats are able to finish that $3.5 trillion bigger package you mentioned, I'm calling it, I've been calling it a social services package because it includes things like universal pre-kindergarten and free community college and extending the child tax credit. You know, and the goal for Pelosi is to still finish that by mid-September, which would be before this deadline to move on infrastructure. And that's because you have to remember in the House, Democrats have a very thin majority, even thinner in the Senate. And it's going to be harder to pass this kind of Democratic-only bill. No Republicans are expected to support it. But these are the big priorities, not only of President Biden, but of a generation of Democrats who have been waiting for the majority that they need to pass it. And so they don't want to squander this moment. That's kind of what Pelosi's thinking. That's what progressives are thinking, is let's not squander this moment with partisanship and lose the votes to pass our pie in the sky. You know, this could be more consequential in a bigger package in the, the in history, bigger than the, the New Deal. Um, but moderates said, why should we do that? This is going to be a more controversial vote. Let's go ahead and vote on the thing that's bipartisan. It's going to get us less heat among Republicans and centrists. And that's what they wanted, but they didn't get it. And in the, in, at the same time, what they did get, at least what Carolyn Bordeaux got, was a lot of criticism from her base, people who helped get her in office. And so she still says it was worth it because she took a stand and, and they got the state certain. But there, she did expend a, 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 a quite a bit of political capital in the meantime. Um, the question is, can she build it back up? And I think she can. But I think in the next few days or weeks while she's back home in the district, we need to gauge how much political capital she actually lost. And that's something we don't really know how much our constituents were actually paying attention to all this.
1: Yeah, Riley, I think that's a great point. I mean, this is an incre- This is the kind of um, complex negotiation, the reconciliation process, the initial votes on a blueprint for the budget, recon- all of that. It's it kind of makes your eyes glaze over. Um, but if anybody's going to remember anything, it's possible in terms of the critics. On one hand, you might have moderate voters up in Carolyn Bordeaux's district saying, thank goodness she's being cautious about this huge price tag for this uh, budget bill. And on the other hand, you've got people like union leaders saying, why did we support you? Why did we go out and raise funds for you? You are uh, you are working against what we thought we were going to get out of you. It puts her in an interesting position, Riley.
0: Well, absolutely, you know, and also Carolyn Bordeaux is in – such a toss-up district, right? Um, It it was a toss-up when she won it, and, and there's We have census coming up and redistricting coming up. We don't know exactly what that district is going to look like. So she is in this kind of thin line between appeasing the moderate centrist voters but also appeasing the people that really helped put her into office. And I think that one of the concerning things for her might be that these harsh progressive um, critics are a lot of the voter mobilization groups that, Mm -hmm. you know, do the work to get voters out there, you know, and to the polls and to vote for the candidates that they want. So I think that is something to be of concern for her. But will people remember this kind of squabble down the road? I'm not so sure.
1: Uh, Fred, I do not want to leave unsaid the fact that one of the ways that uh, Speaker Pelosi sweetened the pot to try to get the moderates on board, was she also wrapped all of this up with the new version of the John Lewis voting rights uh, bill. Uh, we know that the, the previous version passed the House, it went over to the Senate where it's been, um, you know, growing moss. Uh, and now they've got a new version of this bill, which, of course, made it harder for a Carolyn Bordeaux and other moderates to turn their backs from the whole package.
5: Sure. She ran on voting rights um, and uh, you know she's made that a center point um, of her focus while she's been uh, in Washington. Um you know, to, to Riley's point, it is interesting. I mean, you know, we are saying words like um, her constituents, her district, right? Um, but she's in this really interesting moment where she doesn't know what her district will be. Um, and, you know, there, there, there was a time uh, where, uh, where in some districts where Georgia Democrats, where they would have welcomed sort of kind of uh, demonstrating themselves to be independent, different from national leadership, and so forth, and where there were kind of uh, voters who were more elastic, who might vote one way in one, uh, in, one, in one race and vote a different way in a different race. The, the reality, though, is that there are fewer and fewer of those voters. Um, and, I mean, even in the seventh, right? Um, people, they, they voted for President Biden, and they, and they voted um, for her, um, and so, you know, I mean, I, I think there's less of a tightrope for her to need to walk uh, at this particular point. Um, and I think that might be one of the lessons out of this.
2: Greg? Yeah, I mean, there, there's been a, a sense of fury, I'd say, from, from the progressive flank here. And it's, and it's, it's groups representing minorities, it's labor unions, it's uh, voter registration groups, it's Stacey Abrams' allies. Um, that, that have been very wary of saying anything critical of Caroline Bordeaux for a very long time and suddenly have just kind of piled on um, with these open letters. And I'm still getting texts from people even as, as recently as five minutes ago uh, about how they're still upset with the, with the Congresswoman. And, you know, that's, that's the that's the big question coming up is how her district will be drawn because there's lots of different ways this could go. We know it has to be smaller. We know it has to be – it has to shrink. Um but will it be even more democratic? Will it be safer for a Democrat where this could come up as a major issue, where she could be painted as a as someone who's betrayed her own party? Or will it be, um, you know, kind of banded together with more moderate territory uh, further to the east or westers, I should say. And and maybe even she drawn in with Lucy McBath. We don't know the, the, those answers yet. Um, but certainly um, there is going to be, I, I think that, 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 a lot of these progressive activists have long memories. And um, once she's on their list, it could be problematic for her.
1: So uh, we, it is conceivable, Greg, that once redistricting does take place, that we could see um, a Democrat or two who might be willing to challenge her in a primary?
2: Yeah, I, I think there's a chance. I mean, wh- one of the most outspoken critics of Representative Bordeaux was the third place finisher, Nabila Islam, who said essentially that she was appalled by Carolyn Bordeaux's statement. She hasn't told me whether or not she's thinking about running again. But you can imagine that if the district gets smaller and more and bluer, um, that Caroline Bordeaux could face um, pushback, especially among um, Asian-Americans, because this is a heavily Asian-American district. And um and there's some sentiment in the Asian American community that you know they want a chance to have a member of their own community representing the district.
1: Okay, um, we'll watch how that unfolds. And of course, it also points to the uh, larger dilemma that Democrats have moving to the 2022 cycle, which uh, faction of the party is more dominant and more likely to win votes, the people who tend to be more moderate, or the real, real uh, progressives. Uh, And that's going to be an interesting challenge for Democrats to deal with moving forward. All right, um, Greg, keep moving on. So much to talk about. You reported yesterday that Governor Kemp announced he is sending more than 100 medical personnel uh, from the National Guard to hospitals around the state who are f- dealing with a crush of COVID-19 patients. And um, it, it, he is, it, it appears the governor is doing what he can to answer critics who feel he hasn't taken strong enough steps to get the um, uh, coronavirus under control here. Um, and this deals with one problem, which is there's just not enough people in, in the hospitals to take care of all these patients, Greg.
2: Yeah, there's an alarming nursing shortage to begin with. Um, even, even before the pandemic, there was a nursing shortage that's only sharpened over the past few a year or so. Um, and the governor's facing all sorts of pushback from public health act, uh, analysts, from hospital administrators, and from Democratic critics. We're saying that yeah, he needs to do more. He needs to be more aggressive. Um, a few weeks ago, we, we heard from him that he's spending 100 million dollars plus more on expanding the the, the the emergency, the state financed um, healthcare staff to, to buoy these hospitals that are already overwhelmed. Um, he's there's a state uh, uh, impromptu sort of public a state holiday for public employees to encourage them to get vaccinated on Friday before Labor Day weekend there's other there's other um, and there's other smaller things the governor's doing um, but but over the but just yesterday we announced 105 national guard troops it's seen as a stopgap measure for these hospitals it's about 5 per per 20 hospitals yeah. um, so it's a, it's a smaller measure but it's at least something that will help these hospitals deal with the glut and this vicious fourth wave of patients that are overwhelming them
1: You know, Fred, um, we're seeing that public entities, let me just call them that, in the state of Georgia are resisting some of the more, uh, 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 some of the efforts that are being taken uh, uh, in in other states uh, to mitigate the virus. So one example of that would be, Fred, while on your campus, I believe I'm correct that Emory now is requiring uh, shots for all students and for uh, faculty. Have I got that right? That's right. Okay, so you've got that. Morehouse has that. Many of the private schools do. University System of Georgia does not have uh, anything like that. Not only are they not requiring vaccinations, they're not requiring masks be worn. And Fred, one of the most striking aspects of this was uh, reading that (laughs) LSU is now going to require proof of vaccination before people can get in to Tiger Stadium for a football game. Is there nothing sacred about football anymore when even uh, Louisiana (laughs) requires that? And yet, and yet, University of Georgia is at least so far not issuing a similar uh, uh, instruction uh, for its stadium for Stanford, Sanford stadium, which seems to me like a super spreader waiting to
5: happen. Um, yeah, so, uh, so much stand back there on the, um, on the, so on the, on the, for, on the point about just kind of masks in the, uh, in the classroom, um, on the, in the, Georgia, uh, university system, you know, I have a friend who uh, teaches this huge class multiple times a week or about 200 people. Um, and, you know, he's happy to teach, uh, but, you know, he would, you know, he would like to be able to, he can encourage masks, but he's not allowed um, to require it. Um, and, you know, that he's, and I imagine that there's many students and professors who are in this particular position who are uh, concerned uh, about their health um, and um, don't really have autonomy in the classroom. It's kind of, pro- it's prohibited for them to exercise autonomy in the classroom and to require um, to require masks. Um, and you set up a really dramatic contrast, um, with, uh, with Louisiana, um, which, and this isn't actually the first instance during the pandemic in which Louisiana, um, and, um, places like New Orleans have kind of been more proactive at things like contact tracing and the like. Um, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure what accounts entirely, um, for, um, for that distinction um, maybe there, there were moments where Louisiana got harder hit earlier in the pandemic, and so they've, you know, they've, they've taken it um, more seriously from the start. Um, I, I can't really place what it is uh, about, um, about these particular two states that, um, that's resulting in these very disparate um, outcomes. Um, but I know that a lot of folks uh, in, across Georgia um, are, um, are concerned about it.
1: Well, right now, Louisiana is experiencing a, a, an incredible surge, one of the worst surges that they ever have. So there is some uh, sense, I think, behind uh, that decision. We'll see. I mean, it could change here. We don't know. Um, let's do this. Let's get to our final break of the show, because I'm looking over my list of topics that I sent out to this <laughs> panel, and there is still a lot to talk about. We'll get to at least some of the items that I've suggested we uh, discuss after these messages. Riley Bunch, as the crisis in Afghanistan, and particularly as we watch the continuing chaos at the airport in Kabul, continues to unfold, you uh, published a story uh, for the GPB, uh, first for the website, and then I think a radio story as well. The headline is Afghan Georgians hopeless, that's in quotes, after Taliban takeover of Kabul. What did you learn in talking to people either from Afghanistan or or American-born, but with family in Afghanistan?
0: Yeah, you know, I spent a good portion of all of my week last week making phone calls to members of the Afghan community here in Georgia. And what a devastating and heartbreaking situation people are in right now. Um, I spoke to about a half dozen people, but there were more, and I think that's important to remember that Atlanta is such a hub for resettled refugees from all over the world and has been for decades since going back to the Soviet Union invasion of Afghanistan for um, the Afghan community. And, you know, there, a couple main themes came up from talking to people. Number one, the, a lot of the resettled refugees here were government, worked in the Afghan government, or were um, nonprofit workers for the U.S. during the war that aided the U.S., and they're worried about their families, right? You know, the, the Taliban fighters are, are targeting, they say, um, people that used to work for the Afghan government um, and people that aided the U.S during the war so it, it, it a lot of their families are in hiding you know some some they can get in contact with some they can't um and the, the, there's also this sense of um i think one of them put it betrayal by the administration of how they've handled this whole thing it's it, it's it's hard to hear it's it's sad for everyone
1: riley one of the people you talk to is bahar Maher. i think i pronounced that correctly i hope born in kabul Uh, He worked at the embassy uh, in Afghanistan, at the U.S. embassy, but came to the United States, what, on a special immigrant visa late last year. Uh, He's now in Atlanta. Um, He told you something about waking up every morning and trying to figure out what's going on, how to deal with friends and family, right?
0: Well, I mean, the Afghan community here is dealing with it the exact way that we do, right? They're checking the news. They don't have a direct line to what's happening with the government over there. They're checking the phones every day.
1: Let's listen to a little bit of what he said to you.
0: We're all worried. Uh, how, you know, we we, we feel uh, helpless uh, because right now, as you know, there's no any formal program to help the families of those who are trapped in Kabul to uh, evacuate them. And the process which has begun, is the focus is most of the people who are uh, who work uh, not their families uh, not their parents, not their siblings. So right now everyone is concerned about the safety and the future that what will happen today
1: um, You can all uh, look at Riley's uh, print report by going to the uh, GPB uh, news uh, website to see more. Atia, um, George's uh, members of Congress and certainly John Asoff and Raphael Warnock have not joined some of those Democrats who have been fairly outspoken in their criticism of the way President Biden has handled this. Um, How do you read what's going on with them?
4: Yeah, I think it's interesting that most of Georgia's Democrats have avoided direct uh, criticism of the Biden administration. But part of the reason is because there is not a clear answer from anyone. I mean, I think everyone knows that the evacuation has been messy. It could have been better, the evacuation. But it's not clear that anyone could have done anything to like avoid the Taliban takeover. Perhaps they underestimated how quickly, but that it was almost inevitable because, you know, if you can't get the country to stand up in 20 years, what else can you do? So I think Democrats are seeing the complexity of the situation and the lack of a clear answer as to, pointing the finger. And so I think a lot of them figure it's it's smarter to just be quiet right now. And you're seeing a lot of that. I will say U.S. Representative David Scott just um, this morning put out a press release, you know, encouraging the quicker withdrawal of, you know, allies and uh, American citizens. Um, but he even in just this morning, did not touch on criticizing the Biden administration. And I also think that's just safer politically. Everyone agrees that we want to get people out and get people out safely. And then that avoids the, the, the more hot button issues um, of, of pointing fingers.
1: Um, Greg, I got an email from a relatively faithful listener to the show uh, last night. Who is very disappointed in the fact that we've been critical of president biden uh during this when i say we i mean as a collective group the panel has talked Mm -hmm. about the fact that while president biden gets good marks in the polling for uh expediting the removal of americans they like the, the polling shows that americans like that but they're very disappointed in the way the uh collapse took place and the fact that there wasn't a better Uh, 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 system for getting uh, people out of the country if they wanted to. But the fact of the matter is that this is a problem that started with George W. Bush. It became Obama's problem. It became Trump's problem. And Biden now uh, bears the fruits of the mistakes over four administrations. Nevertheless, he does bear the burden of dealing with that, Greg.
2: Yeah, I mean the, the argument they're making is the shared responsibility over 20 years with presidents, military commanders, uh, diplomats, others who have failed to have come to some sort of uh, you know better solution um, to, to 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 the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. And more than 80 billion dollars has been spent, and there's not much, to, almost nothing to show for it, and a growing humanitarian crisis to deal with. And so I understand why Biden's defenders. Um, Want to say like that, that he's not to be held responsible solely for this, and 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 there is a lot of shared responsibility to go a lot, uh, go around, but the the decision to rapidly withdraw U.S. troops has triggered a more sudden collapse than it would have otherwise, and that's why you're hearing Democrats tiptoe around that issue. I mean, as Patricia Murphy, my AJC columnist, asked Senator Warnock point blank last week, how would you rate um, Biden's response? And he tiptoed around it and said, I want to focus on, um, on the humanitarian crisis. I asked Senator Ossoff the same question two days ago, and he said basically the same answer, that it was a surprise, but that the focus needs to be on uh, rescuing U.S. citizens and their allies. And that's going to be the next big flashpoint, and we already see it coming. But as a Republican pushback to refugees being resettled in the U.S., and you're hearing all sorts, especially from the far right, all sorts of criticism and, and more establishment Republicans are, are are having to walk a fine line on that to, to try to avoid that wrath.
1: OK, um, Fred, if you want to weigh in very quickly on this, I still have one more subject I want to get to with you. But um, are people going to remember that uh, we've gone through some rough times getting <clears throat> with the administration trying to get – both Afghans who worked with the United States as well as Americans out of the country. Is there going to be a long memory for that? Is it going to be an issue next year or not?
5: Um, Well, I'm going to lean on uh, Andrea Gillespie for that, because I I listened to the show even when I'm not on it, and she's a political scientist. (laughs) Thank you. And and she says— you know, that, that that it's unlikely that unless there's um, some other kind of, you know, big event um, between now and then that kind of that, that, that revives this in our in our memories, that at this particular that, that we have such short memories um, as a as a as a polity, um, that it's unlikely to be a big issue next year.
1: Tia, uh, one last uh, quick comment from you on this before I get to the final subject.
4: Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that the long term memory will will be determined in large part whether there are casualties on the American side. Mm. So far, there have been none. And if in the long term, Biden is able to say, I pulled troops out so that our kids would stop dying in Afghanistan, and I got many Americans out, most Americans out, you know, that framing of the number out without us losing any of our own you know, that long-term view of what happened may be more favorable than his critics want to admit.
1: Okay, Fred, with the last couple of minutes we have, I want to take advantage of your area of expertise, constitutional law. The um, A three-judge panel of the 11th Circuit Court had ruled twice now, I think, that the uh, high school student, the transgender high school student who sued for the right to use the restroom Uh, with which uh, they identify their gender had the right to do that. But now uh, that ruling has been vacated and the entire panel, the 10-judge panel, is going to take this up. What are the implications of that?
5: Yeah, so the case in some ways presents a narrow issue, um, which is uh, can someone use um, the bathroom that matches their, um, their birth certificate? So this particular... Person, his birth certificate um, now uh, identifies him as a male, um, and uh, and so and so for example, if he were to move schools, and this was the birth, first birth certificate that the new school had of his, then he'd be able to use it, right? And so and so the the court focused very narrowly on that particular issue um, and said, well, uh, that that. That particular type of sex discrimination, like birth certificates, when you first enter versus birth certificate, uh, you know, months later, um, that there's not a, an important government interest that's furthered by that. They didn't answer kind of broader questions uh, about whether or not someone um, can use uh, bathrooms in schools that match their gender identity. But, but, but you're right. So that, that particular panel decision, though, has been vacated and it's going to go to the full uh, 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, which is going to uh, review it anew.
1: But you're suggesting that I think the key to all this is this is not necessarily moving towards setting a precedent about transgendered people and their right to use the restroom with which they identify as as a gender.
5: It doesn't have to. The opinion that was written, the most recent opinion that was written by the 11th Circuit by Judge Beverly Martin didn't answer that broader question. It focused specifically on the facts of this particular case and whether or not uh, having a policy that, uh, that, that says that. Um, that, you know, that you you can't use the bathroom that matches your birth certificate because of this earlier birth certificate, Um, that that that, that particular um, discrimination um, violated Title IX and to some extent uh, the 14th Amendment.
1: Thank you very much uh, for helping us with that, Fred. All right. Wow. We covered a lot of territory today. I'm really grateful to the panel for not only having smart observations, smart analysis, but helping us get through a pretty big uh, uh, series of issues that are bubbling up in politics and public policy right now. So I'm uh, very thankful to you, Fred Smith, for your joining us today. Riley Bunch, always a pleasure to have you, Tia Mitchell. Thanks for coming to us from Washington. I hope you get a chance to rest a little bit now that the uh, uh, Congress, the House, is about to go off on their recess. And Greg Bluestein, thank you as always, and Greg, congratulations on getting it right about Herschel Walker from the very start. Greg?
2: Uh, thanks, Bill.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's it. We're out of time for today's show. Back, of course, with the new Political Rewind tomorrow. I'm Bill Niga. Take care. Stay healthy. Wear a mask when you're inside. That virus is raging out there, even for the vaccinated, uh, if the CDC is telling us the truth, which they are. Get a vaccine if you don't have one. See you all tomorrow.